Welcome to AppSec Builders, the podcast for practitioners building modern AppSec, hosted by JB Avia. Welcome to this episode of AppSec Builders. Today, I'm proud to receive Erika Windisch. We will discuss about serverless and serverless security. Welcome, Erika. Hi. <laughs> so, Erika, you, you are architect and principal engineer at New Relic. You're also an AWS serverless hero. Previously, you were founder at IOPipe. And before that, again, you were security engineer at Docker, right? Ah, uh, correct, yeah. So thank you so much for joining uh, today, Erika. I'm really excited to have you uh, as a guest today. Thank you for having me. So Erika, serverless, as an AWS serverless hero, I guess you know almost everything and you are very, very aware of what's happening in the serverless world. Before we dive in like some uh, AWS uh, specificities, maybe you could remind us what is serverless and uh, how does it differ from the traditional world, especially from a security uh, standpoint? Absolutely. So, I mean, my background is not just Docker. It's, you know, building OpenStack. It's building web hosting services. And, you know, this is a, an evolving ecosystem that, I mean, in the 2000s was you know, as simple or as hard as taking your content and uploading it to a remote server and running your application to as complex as running your own servers, right? And these, of course, are options that are available to you now, but increasingly developers are moving towards, you know, DevOps, they're using containers. They are finding that, you know, CI, CD and deployments and all of these things are useful tools for the organizations to move quickly. And operating, you know, physical machines as, you know, pets, as we would call it, versus cattle, which as a vegan is probably not the, the best metaphor. But, um, <laughs> you know, over this time, we've been increasingly going higher level and operating and deploying and building at higher level layers. And serverless is that highest layer in a sense where rather than building a microservice and shipping, you know, a service that runs on a VM and a container and a host that you have to manage and operate, even if that's part of a larger Kubernetes cluster, instead, you just take your application and you give it to your cloud provider and your cloud provider runs it for you. There's a lot of advantages to this, largely that, you know, the platform is fully managed for you to a large degree. You know, you don't have to maintain operating system patches. You don't have to up maintain kernels. You don't have to do anything other than operate your application. And really the biggest disadvantages to this are that you do lose control of managing some of these pieces. But for most users, there's, there's a benefit and a gain to not having to operate components that are not mission critical or, I mean, arguably they're mission critical because, you, you know, your applications are not going to run without a kernel of some sort. However, you know, that kernel can be tuned, it can be optimized, it can be hardened, and it can be done by Amazon rather than having to make that your problem because you and your organization, you know, often may not have the expertise or the time to invest in having the same level of security that Amazon can provide out of the box. Yes, so that's the ability for users to focus more on what they know more, like their business logic rather than their infrastructure rather than their server configuration. Indeed, so from this point of view, that's much more focused towards what you know and what AWS or the cloud provider knows best. 
right? So that's a lot of uh, advantages from a security standpoint, because as you said it, everything that is uh, maintenance related, like security updates, etc., is delegated to the cloud provider. It's not your responsibility anymore. So is that like the best thing from a, from a security standpoint, migrating to, uh, to serverless? So I would add an additional caveat here, which is that, I mean, serverless is, you know, a concept. There are multiple products that provide serverless capabilities, you know, Amazon Lambda being one of the most popular, S3 arguably being one of the first serverless products. And, you know, many users, you know, listening are already using S3, right? So from a certain perspective, you are already using serverless services. And, you know, S3 has, you know, minimal attack vectors, but they're also large attack vectors, potentially. You could leave your buckets open. I think that actually just today, there's big news that there's this app called Parler, you know, this alternative to Facebook run by, you know, right-wing conservatives. And what happened there is that they left S3 buckets open, apparently, and they were in the middle of a shutdown as well. And, you know, their services were compromised and one of the things that, you know, they've done there is, you know, having misconfigurations of their applications. You know, they've relied a lot on, you know, other serverless services such as Okta, which they were apparently running a free trial of, and they were removed from that service. And then they were then in a situation where people were compromising their services because they didn't have many of these services developed. Now, this is a particular case where, you know, they were denied for acceptable use policies for what I consider pretty reasonable reasons of being denied service. But, you know, the point kind of stands in a way that here's a company that was relying a lot on some of these serverless services, and they found themselves still, you know, at the mercy of security vulnerabilities, despite doing that. And in some ways, it opened up them more to being disconnected, you know, having Twilio disconnect them, having all these other point solutions that were arguably serverless services shutting them down because they relied heavily on the platforms on which they were no longer allowed to use. So your point is that using serverless puts you at risk of the solution provider? No, not necessarily. No, actually, that's not the point I'm trying to make. So much as in they were hacked before they were shut, before they removed some of these services. You know, they were using serverless services and they still got hacked, right? So the point is more that serverless itself doesn't ultimately protect you from application level compromises, right? It does protect you from some of the infrastructure level compromises. It doesn't stop you from other attack vectors. Yes, it is true. It doesn't protect you from being bad people and getting yourself kicked off of services. But it also shows that you can use some of these services that are supposed to provide you, you know, third-party security controls, and they can still fail you. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I guess it's multiple points. <laughs> Obviously, they made a lot of really critical mistakes, both technologically as well as politically. So basically, using serverless is not perfect. You can still make like uh, configuration mistakes, security mistakes at various places of the thing. You mentioned also application level security that, yes, uh, is not prevented by the fact that you are using serverless because the code you are running is very similar to what you were writing in a regular application. Exactly. You're still building applications. So application security is still essential, right? You know, if you're relying on something like Okta or Auth0, it's very easy to misconfigure those and to use them incorrectly. You know, it's possible to have Twilio and not have two-factor working correctly or not having it uh, verify (laughs) phone numbers, apparently. You can have S3 and you can leave your buckets open, right? And that is a large part of my point. (laughs) 
Yes, absolutely. One of the opportunities I would see with serverless is that usually you are starting sometimes from scratch, or at least you are, you need a new CI. You need a lot of new things when you are moving to serverless. So that's also a chance for you to use uh, infrastructure as code, to use a more higher level deployment frameworks, for instance. And so that could be a place where you can bake some security controls to uh, Maybe you review your uh, Terraform files or your uh, cloud formation files to ensure that uh, that you don't have uh, uh, such uh, issues. Are you familiar with uh, such uh, practices, uh, Erika? Yeah, there are definitely companies. A lot of the larger companies actually use their own custom serverless application frameworks where they bake in a lot of these you know, constraints and security controls for everybody, for everybody that is using that framework. I do see that to be a pretty common use case, especially, again, larger companies. But even with the smaller companies, I think that CICD is a place where you can then slip in, you know, some configuration, you know, whether that's, you know, serverless configuration YAML, or even if it's potentially Kubernetes stuff. I don't think it's strictly related to serverless. I think that with serverless, you have a lot more control over your application via configuration, right? Just because, I mean, there's less infrastructure, so I guess... It goes both ways, right? You have less control and more control, right? Like all the knobs that you can turn in configuration, like arguably there's fewer of them, but they're more applicable to your application specifically rather than knobs that are specific to infrastructure. Like you're not turning knobs that control your IO in general, other than your on Lambda, you can control how much memory you get, which does control how much IO you get and how much CPU you get. Uh, but that becomes more of a billing function. It says, how much am I willing to pay for this service? And how much performance am I going to get out of what I'm paying for? But I think that's a little bit different than you know, the level of control that gives you whether or not you are running a certain VM or a different operating system, a different kernel, things like that, which are out of your control with serverless applications. Yeah, and so to me, I'm actually not sure that serverless means less ups. And you said it, it's different kind of controls because if you are a developer before you were doing zero ops and all the orchestration you were doing was at the, I don't know, API or microservice level, maybe application level. If you move towards serverless, you might suddenly start to use things such as step functions that will orchestrate how your functions are communicating together. And so this is ops that a developer starts doing that they were not doing previously. So that's also something that is kind of new. I think that moving away from infrastructure operations to application operations is, I think that not operating the hardware gives you more time to focus on operating your application, making sure your application's working, getting your application tests to work, building out more functionality in your application. And all of this means that you're using your tools more for application support rather than for infrastructure support. Yes, I agree. And if you look at the, you know, there is the typical Venn diagram where you see uh, security, operations, and developers. And so to me, if we consider serverless, like the things are getting more intrigued because you have actually a very different kind of uh, ops when you are moving towards uh, serverless. And so one of the things that could have been previously the responsibility of the operations could now be falling into the hands of the developers. So for instance, who is responsible to define the privileges that a given function should have in terms of uh, IAM and cloud permissions. Is that the developers who exactly knows what it does and is writing, like, I don't know, one function or several functions per day? Or is that the ops who is actually uh, not aware of the full uh, business logic? I don't know if you see similar... Uh... Yeah, I see a lot of organizations creating roles and policies 
organizationally. And then, you know, providing those to developers and telling developers they need to use these policies configured this way. And for a lot of organizations that works, it does create some challenges around the CI/CD platform. And it can create barriers sometimes because if you want to deploy serverless applications and nobody has yet deployed or built your serverless role or has authorized that for you know use in your, or for Lambda in particular, right? If they don't create the necessary roles for Lambda and they don't allow you to create those functions with the right roles and permissions, it becomes a barrier towards adoption within your organization. That said, there's advantages towards using, you know, locking down things like that organizationally. And I think that a balance has to be struck between, you know, enabling innovation in your company and this, you know, like toppled-down, you know, operation level security that happens again at a lot of companies. And it's a balance. It's not necessarily an easy balance to make. And I think that a lot of organizations are very set in their ways because they're not expecting serverless. It is more and more common. Like I know at New Relic, it's something that, you know, more and more teams are looking at using, but it's still something that is challenging to potentially use as well, just because, you know, you need to have, you know, your CI CD system set up correctly. You need to have team members who are familiar with learning and building things serverlessly. It is a different paradigm and it introduces challenges to, especially again, the larger organization or depending on how you structure your you know, your operations. Yes, there is balance between security and usability. So it's not a new thing. Obviously, from a security standpoint, you would think that the principle of least privilege is super important. And that's something that you should keep in your lambda, but probably not to the point of having like one IAM role per serverless function, because I guess that makes the whole thing super uh, hard to scale. And even I don't think IAM is, is a good way to manage like hundreds of roles for your, for your serverless uh, deployment. Yeah, I think it becomes challenging though, because you know a lot of serverless applications do not have really great input validation. So that, of course, does vary according to each language and according to each developer. But most of the code written for serverless or, or Lambda in particular is known in Python. And these are dynamic languages. They are not statically typed. Minimal input validation is often given for these functions. So, you know, having open AIM permissions does also potentially mean potentially having, you know, invalid input passed to these functions, which does mean that you probably should want better input validation depending on how open your AIM permissions are. I mean, there's a good argument with that, which is that you should have good input validation and strong AIM, but we also live in the real world and we recognize that this doesn't always happen. <laughs> Yeah, too much complexity uh, is also uh, an enemy to a uh, decent uh, security. But that's a good thing that you are touching because scale that you have when you deploy serverless, instead of managing like one code base, you are managing maybe uh, 10 or 50 uh, code bases. And so uh, there is a difference in terms of uh, scale that you didn't have previously. So, you know, I would say that serverless enables you to build scalable applications. And what is good about this is that rather than your application falling over is it will scale and it will also charge you. So it does open up some potential for denial of wallet attacks. Uh, serverless tends to be very inexpensive, so it's not usually a large bill, but it is possible to potentially, you know, make force a serverless application to scale, right? Almost like a denial of service attack, but you know, instead of 
denying the service, you are denying, you know, a denial of wallet because you're just charging, you're, you're creating so many resources that you're just racking up their billing because the service is going to scale. It's going to support your requests. It's just going to just keep charging more and more. S3 is the same problem, right? <laughs> denial of wallet issue. I like it. <laughs> Yeah, but I do forget the original question, so I'm, I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> so it was about the scale. And I think challenges such as, I don't know, like vulnerable dependencies, for instance, is tractable when you have a few code bases. But if you multiply those code bases by 20 or 50, that's much harder to, to track uh, at that scale. So I think the challenge for me is not necessarily the code bases, but the deployments, because each serverless function is a deployment of code. And each of those deployments is, you know, an immutable artifact of that code at a snapshot in time. If you are building your application and you don't have good CI/CD, that code could be, you know, out of track with what is in Git. You might have code or applications that are working well for you. And here's the, I think, a big difference between traditional applications and serverless is that if you had a microservice that was serving, say, 15 REST endpoints and you replace it with 15 serverless functions serving one REST endpoint each, you now have 15 deployed services. And if one of those REST endpoints doesn't need updates in a year, it might fall behind the other code bases just because it's not getting those updates. So what some organizations do is they force deployments. You know, They might do monorepos and deploy every function simultaneously so that they're getting you know, continuous deployments, they're getting continuous updates. So I, I don't think that it's, you know, an impossible problem to solve. I think that it just means that you need to have continuous deployment. And I think that deployments need to be more continuous than the code updating it like by itself. Like it's better to deploy it with no code changes than to let it sit for a year, right? Is what I'm getting at. Like you yes. don't want that deployment sitting for a year just because that particular function hasn't changed. And in traditional environments, very often that, you know, less used function will get redeployed over and over again because it's part of a larger package. And because it's no longer part of that larger package, it doesn't get the updates as frequently unless you design for it and, and you plan for that, you know, to get those updates, even when you're not making code changes. Yes, correct, correct. And uh, one solution to that problem is uh, like runtime monitoring rather than GitHub or code level yeah. uh, monitoring, because that's obviously always up to date rather than uh, depending on the, on the deployment. No, that's an excellent point. It's observing what's actually running is really important for knowing what your security posture is currently, because what is in code is not what's running on your servers. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> uh, you can tell uh, SolarWinds uh, about that. <laughs> so to me, one big difference with a serverless as well is you tend to have much more inputs that is coming not from an HTTP uh, request, but from a stream, from uh, any uh, kind of uh, cloud mechanism uh, notification synchronously. And so you mentioned the input validation earlier, but I think that's also a, a domain where uh, developers tend to trust the thing that is not directly coming from the user and where you can uh, actually have a lot of like second order injections and similar similar issues. Yeah, I think that it's very common for a lot of serverless developers to trust that the input that they're getting to their serverless function is in the format and the t you know the types and everything else that they're expecting. That really should not be true. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, we are talking about languages like Node and Python that 
to a large degree are you know not typed. Things like TypeScript can help. You know, general input validation can help. It's definitely something that you should be aware of going into writing these serverless applications. Or if you or you know not writing them, if you're an operator, if you're a security architect at a company that's building these functions, it's something to look at. I agree. And so the fact that uh, we're moving from like the, I would say, traditional model where we are hosting the application on a server or on a Docker container and moving towards something where you are just running code somewhere is a big change for a lot of security tooling as well. Because uh, what you were using for uh, monitoring, intrusion, detection or prevention uh, on a server cannot easily be applied to the serverless uh, world. Do you see such transitions, people trying to find new solutions? Are you aware of, of existing solutions on that, on that behalf? That because they're serverless? I've definitely seen new application models come out because they are containerized. Serverless is kind of a version of containers. I guess one thing that both of those have done is make it easier to run resource-intensive tasks for a wider number of users, right? Because serverless is allocating you a dedicated compute resource to handle your request, it does mean that you have more dedicated compute power for that request than you do outside of a serverless environment because you are isolated per request and you have a certain amount of you know CPU allocated and storage allocated. So I would say that there is more dedicated resources and that allows you to do I mean, there are people that do, you know, machine learning inference inside of Lambda containers. And, you know, for certain applications, that's excellent. It's mostly something you're going to look at running with something like TensorFlow Lite rather than a full TensorFlow. But for handling, you know, individual requests and doing, you know, machine learning against those requests, serverless is an excellent just, just because it is these dedicated CPU cores, these dedicated resources for those requests. I think that building that out to run on containers is significantly more complex. Certainly not impossible. People are doing it. They do quite a bit of it. But I do think that it is more complex to run those sorts of applications on servers and arguably less secure as well. If you're doing, again, you know, machine learning inference, you're running that inside of a sandbox, you know, dedicated compute runtime seems to be, for me, the ideal compute environment. Okay, I understand. And for a security team that would be like a transitioning and that is exploiting several server-level security tools, what do you see them using on serverless? Do you see alternatives to security tools, new ways to monitor or detect attacks? I've seen some you know, interesting new tools come out. I think that for the most part, existing tools are probably... You know, that are already in your tool chain might be the best solution just because you want to minimize the changes for your developers. You want to minimize the complexity, the variation from what your users are already familiar with. On Lambda, you can now ship and run Docker containers or OCI images, which is really powerful. It does mean that you operate and control more of your stack than you do if you don't use Docker containers. So there is more of a security footprint to operate and monitor and observe, but it's still less than full containers, right? <laughs> it's a hybrid. So a lot of those container tools and you know container tooling will work for you. New Relic has a serverless product. Sneak has support for serverless products. A lot of the security companies, I think, are supporting serverless these days in one way or another to varying degrees. 
Yes. But still, if you are using, I don't know, like eBPF or Syscall-based tools such as Sysdig, for instance, that's something that becomes hard to use or impossible to use on most serverless deployments, at least that I'm aware of. For instance, most of the uh, cloud vendors solutions will use, I don't know, like a guard duty or a detective or whatever, but AWS WAF, for instance, is very hard to plug in most Lambda's deployment because the input is not uh, coming from a web source in, uh, in most uh, cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, gosh, I feel like there's a lot there. Yeah, not everything comes from the web, which is true. You know, a lot of serverless applications are evoked from things other than the web, which I think is generally more secure and not necessarily strictly more secure. But I think that there's a lot of web-based attacks that, you know, you, you certainly avoid by not being a web-based Lambda. I feel like there was something else, though, that you were getting at here, and I didn't quite pick it up. <laughs> yes, so one of the big differences, so yes, you cannot do that, but some of the typical security tools do not apply here, but I think there are also a lot of security tools that you don't need anymore. Oh, I see what you're saying. Using, yeah, using Amazon WAF like, as your that firewall, for instance. I mean, I think, you know, again, we go back to input validation. You still have to validate your inputs. But it's true that, in theory, a lot of these things are provided out of the box for you. You know, S3 has a lot of controls, for instance, out of the box. Again, it comes down to configuring those correctly because just because it's serverless doesn't mean it's configured correctly out of the box. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So a big added value I see to the serverless deployments where I think in that case you are ripping away a good part of some ops when you are operating uh, microservices, for instance, Istio, and when you think of the putting zero trust at the application transport layer in microservices where you, you want to authenticate one application talking or one service talking to another service, have cryptography on that, etc. A lot of those controls that you need to manually build in microservices is now coming out of the box with AWS because they already have like certificates everywhere. You already have a way to define the granular uh, roles and IAM permissions that will uh, help you restrict what a given uh, serverless function can do. So on that behalf, that's an amazing uh, improvement to uh, to security. I think that's absolutely true, as long as you can manage your AAM policies. And I think that that's a really, really big caveat. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Are you aware of tools that help manage such policies uh, at scale? I would love to be aware of more tools <laughs> for this. I'm sure that some exist. I'm not super tied into that space. I would love to hear recommendations from your listeners. So I don't think I have a great uh, recommendation to manage uh, such permissions uh, at scale. I know that some companies are doing a very good job of it, but th that's something that we will uh, ask to the listeners, I believe. I do know that there are some tools such as uh, Cloud Custodian that do allow you to scan your Amazon deployment for security configurations and then apply them as policies, which could be used in this capacity, but you know, it doesn't directly solve the problem. It's just a way to, you know, apply policies to your account. But you still have to write the policies. You still have to manage those policies. You still need to, you know, it's a stepping stone towards a solution like that. Yes. I think using a lot of infrastructure as code and software defined uh, policies can uh, really be helpful in ensuring that you are doing a, a good job. But that's only one part of the problem. And so in terms of security, there is one class of uh, vulnerabilities that we didn't uh, discuss. So for instance, hardware level vulnerabilities such as a uh, meltdown or a uh, specter. What are you thinking of that in the context of serverless, Erika? Yeah, so I think that 
when I was at Docker, something I looked at, and this was back in 2014, I was looking at mitigations for Meltdown Inspector before they were known. <laughs> yes, I was about to say it was 2018, I believe, but uh, yeah, <laughs> so 2014 before they were known, that worked. Yeah, well, so what we did know at the time was that there was an attack called Flush Reload. And Flush Reload was a predecessor to Spectre that allowed information to be leaked out of the L3 caches. You know, I looked at ways we could get around this. And what I learned was largely the same things that we learned out of Spectre and Meltdown, which was that these are fatal CPU problems. We can't really work around them. We came up with some workarounds that we then found workarounds around those workarounds. And to be quite honest, we kind of gave up because there weren't any really clear solutions. And the really clearest solution was that, that Intel needed to fix their CPUs, which of course didn't happen until you know the problem became gigantic. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was already a big problem. But what we did recognize was that a hybrid solution would probably be the best solution. That is a hybrid between containers and VMs, which is what Firecracker does. And I think that you know Amazon Firecracker, which is what powers Lambda and powers Amazon Fargate, is probably the best solution that we have towards Meltdown Inspector, besides, of course, you know, replacing CPUs. <laughs> and are you aware of uh, any uh, research performed on that side of, uh, because like you get no guarantee from the cloud vendors on what kind of isolation do you have when your actual Lambda is running? Yeah, so it's actually open source. So Firecracker is open source. You can go to GitHub and you can download it. You can run it yourself. And it is a container runtime that is backed by VMs but still have access to namespaces in the host kernel. So it is a true you know, hybrid solution between VMs and containers. And I think that that's probably what anybody should be using if they're looking at mitigating you know, Spectre today. Okay, super, super interesting. Thanks, uh, Erika. So now, in terms of best practices, if I wanted to start a serverless project today and I'm looking for really top-notch practices uh, to ensure that I have the cleanest setup as possible, what would you recommend? What do you see uh, happening uh, today? I would say there's there's two main pathways that I would recommend. One is to choose a framework such as a serverless framework and build around that and deploy with that. And then the other side is to build around containers and support around containers. And I think there's a lot of really strong cases for building around containers, except for security, because you do have a wider security boundary around those containers than you do around application code that you ship and you don't have to maintain an operating system, right? Because as soon as you ship a container, you're shipping an operating system. When you're shipping just an application, you're relying on you know a pre-existing operating system that will be maintained and operated for you. You know, and getting all of those updates automatically out of the box, you know, on a daily or hourly basis. Whereas when you move the containers, you know, you become responsible for those updates yourself, which will necessarily be a delayed schedule compared to what Amazon's doing for their fully managed environment. But I think there's a lot of advantages towards using containers from a developer perspective, both from developer productivity as well as security. Because even though you do have a wider security footprint now because you, your boundary has been expanded, you also have more tools to help you, <laughs> right? So I think that you, know, you have to make an educated decision around these two choices. And I'm kind of afraid that if you choose to not do the container route, that you're going to have users that want to build with containers anyway, and you're going to support both. So it might be better to just support containers on top of Lambda because 
I feel like you're going to have to support them regardless. Whereas the non-container version is probably optional. You could probably get away with not supporting that and just supporting containers. I think it'd be harder to support traditional serverless applications without supporting containers at all at this point. Now, now that let Amazon supports it. Yeah, and it's also probably something that is much easier if you want to uh, transition to another cloud vendor, test locally, debug locally, etc. Exactly, exactly. So you are an uh, AWS serverless hero. So I'm assuming that you know everything about AWS and serverless, but what do you know about the other cloud vendors and their efforts on serverless and uh, maybe the good and bad things that you see uh, everywhere? Yeah, no, I, I know quite a bit about the other providers too. You know, Azure in particular, I think is really popular with C-sharp support. So I think a lot of the C-sharp users around the top of Azure, Node and Python are less popular there. And I think that some of, as far as I know, I don't think they support container images. You know, everything runs on top of Windows. So it's a very different environment. You know, you can run your Node.js applications and as long as they just do the Node.js things and they use all of the things that are part of the Firefox libraries or the Netscape libraries that are used inside of Node, because Node is basically kind of built on top of Firefox components. So yeah, the Azure way to build things. So I think that's pretty clear. And so do you see like specific uh, advantages? Yeah, so I guess what I was getting at was that it's running on Windows. So a lot of your applications will just work until they don't because you're doing something Windows specific. But that work that, that works both ways. Like sometimes you need something that requires a Windows API and you need a place to run it. And Azure becomes a really obvious place to run things that require, you know, the .NET, you know, CDK, things that require Windows APIs, things that require a specific Windows compiled binary or library. It becomes essential, right? And so that becomes, like, obviously the best place. I think it also can make sense to run on Azure if you have particular business contracts that demand that you run on Azure. I think Google is kind of interesting because they went down a path of Google Cloud Functions, but also Google Cloud Run. And Google Cloud Run has some similarities with containers for Lambda. I don't think it's a bad platform to choose. IOPipe, we actually ran on top of Google and then migrated to, to Lambda. And that was, well, years ago. So I don't think it would be fair to say that the decisions that we made then would be decisions we would make now. But at the time, you know, four or five years ago, it was just not as developed of a product. But I think that goes without, you know, almost without saying because, you know, Google was and Azure were behind Lambda. I would argue they're still behind Lambda, but they're definitely further along than they were when I decided not to use them. <laughs> so Yes. So for me, something that caught my attention recently on, on Lambda was the um, release of the extensions. So that means that uh, if you are a software agent vendor, then you can rely on the extensions. And so uh, I know a new relic is, uh, is using that. We are currently building a screen uh, onto serverless thanks to that. And I don't think that's something that is available on other cloud vendors, for instance. So that's one kind of discrepancy where like, using external tooling is much easier today on AWS than it is with other vendors. I think there's some truth to that. The Lambda extensions are really great for providers like New Relic to say, here's your Lambda function that you've written and you want to add New Relic to it. Now you add an extension and you like kind of click the button a little bit and now you have observability for your Lambda. Whereas before extensions, it was more of an ordeal to instrument your code. Azure has something called bindings, which provides some similarity, but isn't quite exactly the same thing at all. And it's something that we've actually, you know, have had discussions with all the providers, right? Google, Amazon, Azure, about, you know, how do we have a better experience for our users? 
And they're all a work in progress. Amazon has things about their extensions API that are still in progress, as well as Microsoft and Google having limitations of what they provide as well. I wouldn't say that they're necessarily behind each other like strongly. I think that they're just very different. Yes, as they tend to be very different. I hope we'll see some convergence on that, as we've seen with the containers, for instance, and uh, Open Lambda initiatives, or uh, I don't know what. So my next question, Erika, would be about traceability. That's a big uh, question that starts to have a lot of answers, and like uh, open telemetry is becoming uh, the de facto reference with uh, all vendors working on that. Do you see that working well in the world of uh, serverless? What is the best you can do today as a serverless developer to have good traceability on your on your architecture? Yeah, so I think that right now, you know, the products available from companies like New Relic, as well as our competitors, you know, are a really great place to start. Open tracing is something that is, you know, it's kind of pending Vendors such as ourselves are working on it. Amazon's working on it. Our competitors are working on it. And it's coming along really quickly. I really don't want to provide promises as to what will be provided when and where. I know, but I I really probably can't say too many details. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. All right. Erika, I think we've covered several things. Is there anything that you'd like to add, to share? Are you dying for for a given question, subject? I don't think so. I don't have anything to plug or anything, so. Okay, well, I think that's good. I think we had a good uh, overview. We went through many different topics, so I think that's good. All right. All right. Thank you very much, Erika. Thank you. I had a great time talking to you about uh, everything uh, serverless and, uh, and security related. Thank you so much for joining us today and uh, I wish you have a great day. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of AppSec Builders. You can find all the resources discussed during this show on www.appsecbuilders.com. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to get updates on our upcoming episodes. 